You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name's Tyler Heinman. I'm part of the nursing education team in the emergency department, and I'm also an education fellow working for the Education Hub. I'm here with our Burns Clinical Nurse Consultant, Kathy Bicknell, who's working at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. Kathy coordinates inpatient and outpatient care for Burns patients. Kathy also provides education to patients, families, medical nursing, allied health, internally and in the community. Kathy is also involved in developing burn prevention strategies, audits and research. And today we'll be discussing the key points to managing burns in the early stages to improve outcomes for those who are injured. Hi, Kathy. Hi, how are you? Very well. Thank you so much for your time. We'll jump into it. I just want to ask, how long have you been involved in burns and what is it about burns that interests you? I guess I came into burns care almost by accident because the ward I was working on many years ago merged with the burns ward and I then began to take an interest in the burns patients and I've been in this role now for 11 years and I find it's really rewarding and one of the things that I value in my job is being able to follow the patient through their journey. So, you know, often I'll see them in an emergency is an inpatient, as an outpatient, and, you know, I'll follow them into theatre, things like that. But it's it's just rewarding knowing how they're going and be able to get them through this traumatic period of time mm. in their journey of life. Absolutely. And we're incredibly lucky to have a Burns team and someone like yourself involved in it. Why is it so important to assess burns accurately when they first come in, yeah. in that acute phase? So if you don't assess the burn accurately, you're not going to treat them accurately and appropriately. If you underestimate the size of the burn, then you may miss an admission and treatment that may need to occur. If you overestimate it, then you'll overtreat them potentially with resuscitation fluids that aren't required and that in turn can lead to slower healing of wounds. If you don't do your adequate first aid as part of your assessment, then you will not give that wound the best outcome to heal. So treatment without accurate assessment, you can't treat appropriately. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. Can you explain the terminology of burn depths? Because I know it's sort of changed in the last, I guess, five, ten years or so. What I'm talking about is it's not first, second, third degree anymore. No. So we now talk about... We have epidermal, superficial dermal, mid-dermal, deep dermal and full thickness. And the reason we've moved away from first, second and third degree burns is that they're not descriptive enough. And you could say you've got a second degree burn and depending on where on that spectrum they lie of second degree, they will either heal or not heal. Whereas if you can tell us that you've got a superficial to mid-dermal burn, we know that's going to heal. If you tell us it's a deep dermal burn, then we know potentially that child is going to need a graft. In one burn, can you have all of those in one burn? You can. You can get mixed depth burns, which can be a mixture of all depths. And I guess we're really wanting to know about perfusion as well. So have you got any tips about, is it wise to put your hands on and getting in there? Excellent. You need to touch the burn to assess the burn. Excellent. Is something that I'll always say. You just... Make sure they've got analgesia on board, put a pair of gloves on and touch the burn and look at the capillary refill. You're also looking for slipping of the epidermis and the dermis because if you get that, you know 
that you've got dermal burn and you'll start getting inflammatory reaction changes happening and you actually have a burn that needs to be treated. And I guess the superficial, which would be similar to sunburn? or Yeah, exactly just a like, mild sunburn. That doesn't have the inflammatory processes, the, no, the ones for no, the No, it's, okay. it's once you get into the dermis and when you start getting blistering, that's when you start getting the inflammatory responses. So just recapping that, you want a, a capillary refill time. What's an ideal time that you would like, what, that we're looking for? Less than two seconds. Excellent. Same as, just the same for any other cap refill. Great. So I guess body surface percentage area, that's quite a relatively straightforward process to do in adult population. Yeah. Where does it, how does it differ in children? Yeah, it needs to be adapted for use in children. What is a better tool would be the rule of um, the London Browder chart, uh, which has different numerical numbers for each part of the body. But like the rule of nines, the only areas that change with the growth of the child are the head and the legs. All other values remain the same no matter how old the child is. The other way you can assess the burn is we call the rule of hand and the patient's hand is considered 1% of their body surface area and it's a quick and easy way just to assess and then you can go on and do a more formal assessment once you've got the child treatments happening. Um, yeah. Excellent. So that's a really good tip. You use the child's hand to count their own percentage. Mm. And uh, what are we counting? Are we counting superficial in that as well? No, it's only – you don't count epidermal. It's only superficial dermal and below right. that you would count. Okay, so and that you, blistering. Often you will get an erythematous flush that occurs. You don't count that flush yep. either, that and epidermal. And I guess it's quite difficult for the first-line crew saying um, ambulance mm. that see them first. They do see that at the most acute phase, and um, sometimes that does get into their own assessment. So yeah, they it does. overestimate, and then when everything's calmed down after a bit of cooling and time, we get a more accurate. Mm. And that's true. So you should always reassess. So first responders will have their assessment, and then they may be taken to a local hospital. They should do their assessment. And then when they come here, we do the assessment again, and it usually will get less and less as they come in, especially if it's a scald burn, not necessarily if it's a flame burn. Flame burns will burn at a deeper, at a higher temperature than what a scald will, so they're more likely to have, at the time, what is the actual burn, yeah. What are common burns uh, we see in children? So, you know, I guess the the toddler age will be, quite curious where do they usually burn themselves compared to uh, maybe even younger or slightly older is there a pattern yeah so the younger at least half of the children admitted are in that age group of one to two years of age um, and it's to do with scolds they pull cups of tea and coffee off benches they pull pots off stove they all climb on benches and tip over kettles you know there's an myriad of ways that they can cause havoc and cause an injury and the best prevention is to keep children out of the kitchen when you're doing any cooking yes um, because that's how the majority of our children are burnt we do see a lot of again in the toddler age group who have contact burns from putting hands on heaters mm. um, during the winter months um, they might get contact burns to their feet if they run through coals that have been left to burn or campfires that have been put out inappropriately with dirt instead of water and they run through the 
dirt and find that the coals are still hot underneath. So contact burns are our second most common form of burn and followed by flame injuries. And the flame injuries are often older children who are playing with, you know, matches and lighters. The other way we get flame burns injuries is people putting accelerants on fires and children standing nearby and they suffer the consequence of that action of the accelerant. So you should never put accelerants on fires. Um, I'll just put that message there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, But, yeah, so they're the older children usually that do that. Friction burns, we get a lot of friction burns, mainly from treadmills or, you know, that's a major type. So, again, keep children off treadmills when they're not being supervised properly. And I guess it's really important to understand the patterns of injury depending on age as well, which... We're not going to get in too deeply, but it helps with your assessment and making sure that the story fits. It does, it does. And, you know, the child that's pulled the cup of tea off the bench will have a typical pattern where it'll be face, neck, chest, um, sometimes on the arm. Occasionally they'll miss their face and it'll just be on their chest. But if you imagine the action of the cup being pulled over and how you would expect that flow of liquid to be you can determine in a way whether that's how the injury actually happened if it's a bigger burn was it from a pot you know a bigger vessel that the water's come out of Um, but yeah just being very curious in your mind about does the mechanism fit the injury and does the mechanism fit the age of the child's development can you explain that those first steps in first aid management? Because we did mention if we get the first aid right, it does improve their outcomes. So what, what do we do when, okay. when that happens? The gold standard first aid is 20 minutes of cold running, cool running water. It doesn't have to be all at once, and it can be within three hours of the injury. So if you do 10 minutes at home, 10 minutes in the hospital, that's fine if it's within the three hours. The research doesn't show any benefit from doing first aid after that three-hour period. But it might provide some pain relief if you've got them under running water. Okay. And I can only think of only a very few situations where you don't have access to cool running water. In that instance, if you are remote and you have nothing at all, is there anything you can do? Yes. If you've got soft drink, you could actually cool soft drink, alcohol, um, whatever cool liquid you've got. Get them to help as soon as you can and then clean the area appropriately. If, you know, you buy a river or a dam, you could put them in the dam, but be very aware that that river and dam water will hold microorganisms and the wound will be need to be thoroughly cleaned after that first aid. But you could use something like a burn aid, which is um, an impregnated pad that you can use but they should only be used for 20 minutes and then taken off because they will cause hypothermia if they've left on, especially if it's an extensive wound. Yep. And also, um, if you're putting any creams or anything like that on, advise not to because you're no. going to have to take it off and scrub it off. <laughs> yeah. By the time uh, We don't recommend any creams, especially in that first couple of hours. The best bet is to get do the first aid and then if it's a mild burn, you could put a burn cream on. But if it's deeper and it's blistered, you should have it seen by a physician, medical person. Excellent. So cool running water. Yeah. Analgesia, I mean, I, I feel the cling film would be quite good because it actually is covering all those pain receptors. What analgesia can you give to help? 
Yeah, so after you've done your first aid, it is a good idea to cover with cling film, but you can't leave that cling film on for more than a few hours. So if you're transferring a patient to a burns unit, um, and you would cover it and send them, transfer them. If you're going to treat them, you would just cover them with cling film until you get the definitive dressing on after you've cleaned it. Yeah, so pain management, you can start with a simple analgesia, your Panadol, Paracetamol, Ibuprofen, then you could move to intranasal fentanyl, nitrous gas. We tend not to do anything intramuscular these days, especially in children. With burns, you can have a sporadic uptake of narcotics via the muscles, so you can end up having problems with getting their pain under control so if you were going to use morphine you would use it intravenously that's really useful thank you and and also like you mentioned intranasal fentanyl is a great medium because you don't have to have access you can yeah squirt it up the nose when dressing burns what what are the dressings that we commonly use and i'm talking about when we get to that beyond superficial so what what do we use yeah so superficial burns will heal basically no matter what you put them put on i would not recommend putting a film dressing on though because it traps any microorganisms underneath and can cause infections but we once you get into the sort of mid dermal and deeper you try to put on a silver impregnated dressing so we use um actacote We'll use Mepilex AG, Aquacel AG. There's a lot of different silver products on the market and you can use whichever one you're familiar with. But we would suggest using the silver dressing. You know, they'll help preventing infection and they will also form that moist wound environment that we like to have for the healing. And they don't need to be changed every day, which is a big bonus with paediatric patients. Absolutely. And we have um, Actacote 7 or Actacote on its own, which is about three days. And yeah. 7 means the days. Yeah, that it can great. reside on the patient. And I guess some of those peripheral centres might not have access to those. So the patient should be transferred to a facility that can manage. So in the meantime, would it be good advice to get that first aid down with cool running water, give them some analgesia, put some cling film on and get them transferred so that yeah. we, can, we can dress them. If they don't have the appropriate resources to deal with it, then we would suggest them coming down. They don't always have to come by ambulance if it's you know a small area. You know, you could put something like a Bactagrar on if it's going to be more than eight hours before they're seen by the Burns team. So you could do Bactagrar and Melalin, say, or a Duoderm and then send them down to a clinic, which, you know, if the clinic's going to be the next day, you could do that or send them down to the emergency department and they can put an appropriate dressing on. And then it might be, you know, they might be able to be treated locally after a week of silver dressings. They might not need any more, but we would make that assessment when we're, they're seen here. Here's a question and I know everybody wants to know. Do we debride blisters? That can be controversial depending on who you talk to and which research you read. But our belief is that you debride the blisters so that you can assess the wound bed and you can apply the dressing so that it's in contact with the wound and it can do the most care. You're also taking off that dead blister skin, which if you leave it on the wound will turn to slough and it in itself can cause issues for the wound healing. 
When do children need to be admitted? When do they stay in? If they've got a greater than 10% total body surface area burn, they will potentially need resuscitation, fluid and care for more than a few days. If they've got a facial burn and the parents aren't confident or able to do the face care at home, those children need to be admitted so that the face care can be done appropriately. If a child has an infected burn, they would need to come in for antibiotics. If for some reason their oral intake is no, has decreased at home and they become dehydrated, they would also need to be admitted as well. But you know, it's usually the ones that are over 10% total body surface area. And uh, we have a fantastic CPG that I'll attach to the description here as well. And it will give you uh, really good key points and particularly how to fluid resus them as well. I guess we still use that park, modified Parkland's formula. And can you just explain, it's dictated on urine output, is that right? Yeah, we've, we've actually at the Children's gone away from having fluid rates change at eight, the three eight hours in the 24 hours. So it used to be that you would get your 24-hour volume divided into three lots of eight and you would give it at that rate and not really change. What we're finding is a lot of patients are getting too much fluid. So we're now, once you get your 24-hour volume, you then follow the formula and get a starting rate for resuscitation fluid. And then once you've started the fluid after the first hour or two, you assess the urine output and we're aiming for one mil per kilo per hour. If you get less urine output, you need to give more fluid and usually you give them about increase by about 10% or give them a 10 mil per kilo bolus. If they're getting more than one mil per kilo per hour, you would decrease the fluids again by about 10% and then reassess over the next hour or two. Excellent. That's fantastic. Thank you for clarifying that. Just finally, do you have any sort of take-home messages, any key points you'd like people to know who are not familiar managing burns in paediatrics or burns in general? Would you like to sort of finish off with any sort of key points? Don't be scared of the burn. Great. As long as you give analgesia, you can treat them appropriately and don't be scared to touch it. Yep. I know a lot of people are scared of burns, but you can have a big impact on how this child's outcome is going to be. So take it and run with it. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Kathy. We really appreciate your um, expertise. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.